Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Leading up to this, we've seen Jesus revealed his personal, his physical, and his verbal compassion for the people in Capernaum. That was something we looked at a few weeks ago. We saw how he delighted to make them whole, right? Not, not just heal them, but to also proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. And that meant that he was, he was committed to that proclamation, even more so than his healing ministry. That was sort of the climax of his healing ministry. The, the healing ministry served the proclamation, if you will. It served to make the proclamation more real for those who were listening, that they could trust in the proclamation of this man who was sent from God. And so as we continue to consider Jesus and his ministry, we'll look here at this section dealing with his call of the first disciples. So before we read it, let's ask for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you proclaimed through your Son the truth of the gospel and that those who heard it out of those who heard it, many did respond to the truth in belief and pass that on to their children and continue to pass it on and spread it around the world so that we too might receive that gospel message. And Lord, as we hear it proclaimed in your word, we ask that we would respond appropriately or that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would repent and believe, and that we would continue to believe as we walk by faith. And so Lord, do a work in our hearts, even now. For your glory we ask it, in Christ's name, amen. Let's read with me, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, Jesus often utilized the scenery around him to illustrate 
his message. And some have taken that a little far, so where they feel like they should have a prop at every sermon, they should hold something up to illustrate what they're teaching. I don't think Jesus did that. I don't think he had to have things in his hand, but I do think that he used his surroundings. He used the events and the experiences of everyday people in their everyday lives to show them how he could intrude and how his truth could impact their lives and to transform their lives. And so he valued relating truth to everyday, to our everyday lives. And in this case, he uses this illustration of, of catching fish. He uses what the fishermen did every day to then illustrate what he would call them to do with evangelism. And here's how I would summarize this passage. I think what he's, what he's showing us is that his miraculous provision leads to a marvelous conversion and an all-encompassing mission. So a miraculous provision leads to a marvelous conversion and an all-encompassing mission. And so he opens up here, once again, reminding us that his ministry was one of preaching. We see, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he just finished chapter 4 saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And now he's, we see him fulfilling that purpose. And Luke wants to point out just one of those episodes, one example of this, of his preaching ministry is here when he calls his first disciples. And so Peter and his brother Andrew were fishing with their partners, James and John. And they spent the whole night using a dragnet without a catch. So they have this dragnet. Maybe you've seen these large nets that, that they would have thrown over their boat, probably some hundred feet long. And they would, it's, it's not an easy process to throw it out and then to circle around to sort of create a semicircle. Uh, and, and then to hope some fish gather into that net. And then they have to drag it in hand over hand and pull it in until the whole net is in their boat and find out there's nothing in it and do the whole thing over again. All night long, they spent doing that without a single catch. And so now they're washing and they're mending their nets as would have been their custom. So, so they spend the night, because that's the best time to fish, fishing, and then they spend the morning washing and mending their nets for the next night. And so as they're doing this, Jesus comes along and begins teaching. And so Peter must have known something about this Jesus who starts to step into his boat all of a sudden, right? He, he knows that he's a trustworthy individual or maybe that he's the one who was doing miracles not far from where they were now. If they were along, they've come to the, the Sea of Galilee, which Capernaum is, a, is right along the Sea of Galilee. So they very well could just be um, just outside of the city there. And so this crowd grows to the point where Jesus needs more amplification. And if you've seen the coast of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, you, you, could, you could see um, there's inlets, a bunch of inlets, almost like zigzagging along the coast, especially right there near Capernaum. And they create this natural amphitheater because they're steep. And so there's not a whole lot of room to, to stand on the shore. So as the crowd's gathering, it's kind of pushing Jesus back further and further so that he ultimately steps into the boat and then pushes himself back. And in fact, that 
being out in the water like that would have carried his voice even further so that more of the crowd could hear him, even as you know, better than they could when he was standing on the shore. And so by, um, by this point, he's, he's out, he's continuing to preach, and now the entire crowd can hear him much better. And I think just at the beginning of this, before the miracle takes place, it's just a reminder a simple reminder of the value of preaching, right? That he wants everyone to hear. As the crowd's gathering, he, he doesn't want anyone to be straining. And so he gets into a boat, backs out so that they can hear him more clearly. He established himself in the best possible position to reach the greatest number of people with his message. And as all heard, they would have listened to, to him and they would have witnessed as well the miracle that takes place, and even the calling upon the lives of these first disciples. They would have seen the result of following Christ, the call upon the lives of these fishermen. And maybe some in their own hearts were convinced and moved. But the focus here is upon the disciples themselves. And so from teaching everyone, he turns specifically to his instruction to these fishermen. And you see the commands in verse verses 4 through 7. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets. So now he's, he's no longer just right there on the shore. That's where he'd been preaching. But now he says, go out deeper. Go out into the deep where actually fishermen probably wouldn't have gone to fish. That's, that's not the best place necessarily to catch fish. Um, they would have known where to catch. But Jesus tells him, go out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And so Jesus taught, Peter fished. And that's, that's their roles. That's their jobs. They're both really good at what they do. Jesus is sort of starting to cross the line here, right? Telling a fisherman when, when he himself was a carpenter. And it's, it's not as if he had, a, had this special uh, skill in fishing. Right? And no one would have thought that. But he tells Peter to go out further. And even though they had caught nothing when they fished at night, which is the best time to fish, Jesus commands him to go there in the middle of the day, the worst time to fish, in what's likely not even the best area to fish. And out of respect for Jesus, Peter obeys. Probably sore, still tired from the night before, he's now going out thinking this is hopeless. And so stand in Peter's sandals for a minute. Think about the job you do every day. Maybe it's something, maybe there's parts of it that are just simple routines. You do them over and over again, they're easy. And now imagine someone with entirely different work experience telling you how you can be more effective, how you can get your work done a little faster, get it done a little better. And so you reluctantly agree to try it, and it works. And that's something of the experience these fishermen would have felt. And then you could imagine being on the shore and witnessing this take place. 
right? How would that have felt to, to see these fishermen overshadowed by a carpenter? How would you respond to that? We'll consider Peter's response in a moment, but consider how it would make you feel. I mean, certainly there would be some awe, some amazement at what just took place, probably the greatest catch they'd ever had. Certainly filled with joy. Maybe you'd be thinking, this Jesus would be nice to have around. I'd get a lot done. Maybe get a little more, um, catch a little more fish, make a little more money. Maybe you'd offer Jesus a job. Would you be ready to follow him after receiving such a miraculous provision? I think you'd listen to him at least. You'd want to be around when he was speaking. So Jesus follows his first command with this incredible call. And here's where we see what I think is maybe the most shocking the not as shocking as the catch, but incredible that Peter would respond to it the way he does. And after this miraculous provision, he's not offering Jesus a job. He's saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. It's shocking. And in one sense, it's good, right? Peter reveals his humility. He recognizes he's not worthy to be near this man. He recognizes God's power is being revealed through this man. And so a response of fear is consistent, in fact, with just about every human reaction to the manifestation of God's glory and power throughout Scripture. I mean, I'm not even sure of an exception to that rule. That when God reveals his glory and his power, the initial reaction is one of fear, one of trembling, one of a deep sense of unworthiness. And so you can consider some of the, the, the common pattern in the Old Testament. There's not, whenever there's a call account, it's not as if they're always identical at every step, but they all include some sort of divine initiative. God calls God does the acting initially. Then there's some sort of protest from the individual. Maybe it comes after a reaction of fear, but there's always some sort of protest. I'm, I, you know, I'm not the right one for this job. Are you sure you got the right person? And then there's this divine reassurance and finally a commission. And again, the commission may be at the beginning, but all of these components are typically present. So consider Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, you don't need to turn there because we're going to look at several different ones. But in Exodus 3, what is Moses' initial reaction? He sees this burning bush. He starts to walk over there. And then uh, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. 
for he was afraid to look at God. And then as you keep reading, you know Moses protests that he's slow of speech. And, um, and God reassures him that he's calling him to this work. Consider Job. It's not a typical call passage, but I, I want you to think, uh, hear his response when God speaks to Job. All the way near the end, actually, after, after God has really rebuked Job for some of his overreaction. He says this, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Moses reacts in fear and a sense of unworthiness. Job reacts in the same way. And then all the way in the back of the, your scriptures, in Revelation chapter 1, we see John reacting in a similar way. He sees a vision of the Son of Man. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined with a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. But maybe the most consistent with our passage this afternoon is, is the call upon Isaiah. Again, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at all the, the first eight verses of that passage. So once again, we see Isaiah receives a vision of the Lord, and his response is similar to the rest. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. Powerful examples. Peter, in a long line of 
examples of God calling people. And this feeling, this sense of unworthiness. Now this scene that we've considered at the Lake of Galilee, it's very similar to one that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's recorded in John chapter 21. This has come after the crucifixion of Jesus, after his resurrection. Peter himself has denied Jesus three times. And so full of shame and confusion, he goes back to fishing. Goes back to what he knew before, before his calling. And once again, he fishes all night with his companions and has no success. And we read here in chapter 21 of John, verses 4 through 7. Jesus begins to approach him in the morning. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Totally different reaction to the first one. Why didn't Peter ask Jesus to depart once again? Almost the exact same sequence of events. Different sea. This is at the Sea of Tiberias. Why didn't Jesus or Peter respond in the same way? This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's walked with this man. He's served alongside him for three years. And although he knew himself to be a great sinner... And even most recently, having denied Jesus three times, he knew Christ to be a great Savior. So he knew he was forgiven. And so Jesus preached to the crowd. He commanded some of the fishermen to, to obey, and then he calls them to become fishers of men. R.C. Sproul talks about this passage. He says, The call of discipleship was in the midst of a manifestation of his holiness. Actually, he points to this in his, in his book, um, The Holiness of God. And so it was Jesus in his humanity that caused Peter to react with fear and trembling. And it was that same Jesus, now in his glorified body, after the resurrection, that caused Peter to come charging towards him in the freedom of forgiveness. And two episodes mark both the devastation and the glorious experience of salvation. It brings us to the end of ourself and points us to the only one who can rescue us. And so Jesus should, first of all, make us uncomfortable. Right? That's, that's our initial reaction. But we should never remain there. We cannot remain there once we've come to know his grace and his mercy. And so let us rejoice in that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for this picture. 